0: We are back for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live, and I have returned to my mother's basement to bring you another new episode. I'm joined by my co-host extraordinaire, P. How's it going, P? Fantastic, as always. Super excited. This is going to be a good conversation. We're excited for this one, absolutely. We are joined by energy expert and author Alex Epstein to break down his new book, Fossil Future. Alex, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, Doing great. So is that really your mother's basement?
0: I am in my mother's basement. like actually. And Is that is that
1: your normal location or are you visiting?
0: I truly live here thanks to COVID, but also thanks to the fact that like, I don't know, it's cheaper than rent anywhere else in the country right now.
1: <laughs> it is cheap. Is she a Bitcoin fan?
0: She is. She knows how to that's buy. Im- that's important. Oh yeah. it It is. It turned into a very nice thing where in the middle of COVID when she was asking like, so you don't have a job. What do you do all day? I'm like, well, let me tell you about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> but we are uh, here to talk more so about your actual new book, which is in your background, uh, Fossil Future. And this is a- It's
1: actually not follow- that big though. It's, it, this is a, real, <laughs> it's a regular book.
0: It, it, it is a thick read though. It's like over 400 pages. It's a fun read though, <laughs> yeah, I will say. It's
1: very thick for sure. <laughs>
0: um, and this is the follow-up to your first book, um, the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and talk to us a little bit about, you know, this eight year journey from when the first book was published to today, now that Fossil fuel Future is available and what sort of led you to continuing that story with this one.
1: Uh, Yeah, thanks for asking. So there are kind of two stories. One is the energy journey in general, and then why write another book about fossil fuels? Uh, And so Fossil Future is really a replacement for The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. It's a totally new book that I just think is 10 times better. And obviously, it's going to be much more current. And as the title suggests, it's very focused on the future. So what happened, the reason I decided to just replace it was that I had this amazing success with this first book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, despite the fact that compared to now, I didn't know nearly as much about energy. I didn't know nearly as much about how to explain things. And I was given six months to write the thing by the publisher. And yet it became a New York Times bestseller, It sold probably almost 100,000 copies. It influenced a lot of people. And I was thinking about like, what could I do? What could I create that would be really valuable in the world? And I thought, well, look, the anti-fossil fuel movement is still winning. In fact, they're winning more than they were in 2014. It's a bigger issue. And I feel like I can just totally uh, redo this in a way that actually has a chance of changing the conversation. And in particular, I thought I can write something that can really reach people who expect to disagree. And I can, I can write it so clearly and so rigorously that it's going to be really, really hard to write off because I cover everything. And so I, 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 it was very, very hard to do. I mean, ridiculous, but I'm really happy with, uh, with how it turned out. And it's definitely the best thing I've ever done.
0: I will say, like I will just say point blank, when I fully understand what the concept of this book was before reading it, I was I was ready to a not like the book, not agree with a majority of your topics, and like it looked forward to this conversation of more of a battle than actually mm. enjoying what I read. Um, one of the things you really, I thought you did such an excellent job because. Like you presented the framework of this whole climate crisis and our reliance on fossil fuels and the conversation around it as being politicized to a degree. You see it being turned into you're either on this side of the argument or you're not, It's but it's not black and white. There's so many flavors to this spectrum, but you also introduce that throughout various different topics like you know you bring up the vaccinations and how if you're only saying what the side effects are you're not paying attention to the whole story here and same to, same with the numerous other topics i'd love to maybe have you share what your rationale was to bring up so many other topics that are all also just as polarizing to then really help people understand the framework of how they're receiving some of these information how they're uh explaining it out to their family friends and others
1: I'm really, really interested in how to think about complex, controversial, and crucial issues. They're also confusing. So you can think of it as the four C's. And that's a lot of what motivated me to get into philosophy because I think of myself as first a philosopher and and then somebody who spent 15 years becoming. Uh, an energy expert. And so part of what philosophy does is it allows you to step back and say, hey, how am I going to think about these questions? Not just jump in and am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Do I believe in climate change? Do I not? Is that even the right way to think about it? But just how do I go about thinking about the question? And here the question, which I think is just about the most important question in the world is, what does the world do about its massive use of fossil fuels? It's a fact that the world is 80% powered by fossil fuels. It's a fact that most of the world uses what we would consider a a completely, unacceptably low amount of energy. It's a fact that fossil fuels are are growing fast. And it's a fact that fossil fuels uh, emit CO2, which I think there's very, very good evidence and, and physics that they cause a warming of the global climate system, that rising CO2 causes a warming of the global climate system. And of course, there are other side effects, namely pollution, although those are kind of less of concern because we we have experience in different places that we can limit them. Whereas CO2, our experience is we burn fossil fuels, we energize the world, and yet we emit CO2, and there's a lot of concern about that. So it's not an easy question to think about. And, And the baseline, I think, is, as you indicated with vaccines, or prescription drugs, including antibiotics, is you need to carefully weigh benefits and side effects. And one thing that really shocked me about this this, uh, issue of fossil fuels and what to do about the world's massive use of fossil fuels is that we don't carefully weigh benefits and side effects, even though that's total common sense. I've never met one person in my life who said we shouldn't weigh benefits and side effects. Nobody ever said, explicitly like, hey, we should, we should ignore the side effects and only look at the benefits, or we should ignore the benefits and only look at the side effects. So it's common sense to look at both, but it is not common practice at all. And one observation I make in chapter one is that even if you look at our leading thinkers, what I call our designated experts, you see person after person really not looking at the benefits of fossil fuels. My, my favorite example is one of the world's leading designated experts, climate scientist, Michael Mann, who he's considered one of the scientists we're supposed to listen to. And he says, rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. And yet, if you look at his book on fossil fuels and climate, it only talks about negative side effects of fossil fuels. For example, on agriculture, which is fine. You should do that as long as you're doing it objectively. But he doesn't talk about the benefits of fossil fuels to agriculture, even though fossil fuels power almost all the agricultural machinery that feeds the world. And they provide the fertilizer. Now, what are we having right now? We have a food crisis caused by rising energy prices, including a massive fertilizer crisis. We're talking about starvation. For me, it's because we didn't consider the full context. We only looked at the negative side effects of fossil fuels, but not the benefits. So I thought there needed to be somebody who really looked at this crucial question and looked at both carefully with as little bias sort of coming in as possible with a real interest in the truth. I didn't, I didn't even know anyone in the industry when I came up with my ideas. It's not like they paid me to do this. So I really, I really honestly wanted to know the truth and still do. And I think it leads surprising places that we should actually be using more fossil fuels.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting that most often many of the most important ones become narrative games rather than an actual careful examination of the truth.
1: That's an that's an interesting term. Uh, can you I- explain that a little bit? I like that term.
2: Yeah, I just, yeah, I, I made it up. Uh, no, I'm sure I did, I'm sure I heard some else. But basically the idea that, um, that instead of engaging openly and honestly in a conversation, basically having a specific outcome that you're driving towards, and instead of uh, basically moving the goalposts. So shifting the frame of the conversation rather than addressing the actual facts. I think an example here is, you know, for a lot of people, even the, the question of could fossil fuel use actually be good for humanity is like even asking the question is perceived by some people as like an attack. They're like, why would you even ask that? Like, how dare you? And to me, that's an example, that is a, a classic signal that um, people have been preconditioned to not carefully examine what's actually going on.
1: So I really like that. Just one one, one, one quick thought on that is, so I think of a narrative as, you know, the story of where we are and where we should go. Exactly. And the key, and and narrative is not a bad thing, but I believe it needs to be based first on an exploratory framework. So you first think about how am I gonna look at the question and then you actually evaluate it and then you can have a narrative, but of course the narrative should be subject to revision. The narrative is never fixed. Right? The narrative should be something that if the facts change or somebody gives you an argument, you change. So for example, the, the common narrative is fossil fuels are causing climate catastrophe, but are rapidly replaceable by renewables. So we should rapidly implement them and mandate green energy. Like That's the basic narrative. And I have the exact opposite narrative, which are fossil fuels are making the world amazingly good. We need more of them. They help us master climate and will actually continue to be safer than ever uh, from climate. But Neither side, it it shouldn't be about the narrative. It should be about how do we think, what's the right way to think about this? Honestly, being interested in the truth, and we should be open to changing our narrative. So, I like that idea of a game because it's not, it shouldn't be a game.
2: Absolutely. That dog is super excited about this conversation as well.
1: My my dog, I was worried about when I was having trouble logging in. He was on this floor and he was making a lot of noise. So, I'm I'm glad Sherlock isn't the the canine villain uh, today.
0: Very very sorry about that. He's attached to my hip whenever I come back from a travel and he just saw a crow so there's that but there's there's another part of this conversation that i'd love alex for you to expand on and it's you touched on a little bit but this the facts that are being presented by the people that most of the citizens look up to and think are you know they're telling you the truth but they're being presented in a way where you're hiding a majority of the story to almost present a framework around hey I need this narrative to be pushed forward that fossil fuels are bad and that we should push forward green energy without actually encompassing sort of the total story here. Talk to us a little bit about what you're noticing out of that realm and just why or what it's important for citizens to, be understand, to understand when we're getting information like this.
1: We should always want what I call the full context. We always want to know the full context of relevant factors. And I take it very seriously. If I ever see somebody knowingly or deliberately not giving me that, I really write them off. So, and it, people would say, like, How could you write off Michael Mann as an authority? And like he talks about agriculture, doesn't talk about the benefits of fossil fuels. Like I can't trust him on anything because he clearly has a bias that's causing him to dismiss the benefits of fossil fuels. So, that same bias would likely cause him to exaggerate the negative side effects in the same way that if somebody has a bias against their mother in law, and ignores good things the mother in law has done, they're probably exaggerating the bad things the mother in law uh, has done. Uh, So it's it's And and so you see this with all kinds of of issues and and I'm I'm guessing you'll bring up concrete things but that will will come up today. But just to take two quick ones, climate and then the issue of renewables. With climate, I mentioned that not just the media or what I call the disseminators of knowledge but the synthesizers of expert research like above all what's called the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They have multi-thousand page reports on climate and yet they do not mention the fact that we are far safer from climate than ever, namely that what are called climate related disaster deaths. So from storms, flood, extreme heat, extreme cold, wildfires, all these things that are supposedly getting worse are in fact down 98% over the last hundred years, which is that's an amazing thing. And they certainly don't mention that it's fossil fuels that have a big role because fossil fuels power all the machines that protect us, like not just heating machines and cooling machines, but also irrigation machines, infrastructure building machines. and So, how could you have a discussion of climate and the threats of man made climate change if you don't recognize that whatever man made climate change has occurred so far, man made climate mastery has far, far outweighed it and made made us unnaturally safe from climate? Like, omitting that is crazy. I mean, it's not crazy. I think it's, but if you see that, it should really call into question whom you're relying on as experts. And in the realm of, of renewables, just one example is you'll hear something called the levelized cost of electricity. The, the main firm associated with this is Lazard. And they'll say, oh, well, look, this thing went down. Uh, therefore, and it's, it looks lower than coal or gases. And therefore, uh, renewables are cheaper than coal and gas. And we don't need coal and gas. And we get rid of it. And there's many fallacies here. But Lazard explicitly says, and it's clear, they're not looking at the full price of the electricity. Namely, they're not looking at the near 100% backup that solar and wind require. So I call this partial cost accounting. So it's another example of you're not giving the full context. And when people aren't doing that, to take the term earlier, I do think it's a narrative game. It's not trying to understand the world and having that kind of openness to whatever is true is true and having a clear goal and a clear framework. It's really trying to manipulate you into achieving uh, a certain policy goal, whether or not you would agree with it if you knew all the facts.
2: It's so interesting. We see that a lot in uh, in Bitcoin mining, kind of on the mm-hmm. other side of it, where, you know, with Bitcoin mining, it's, it is because everything is so open and you can see the uh, the hash rate and you can deduce the amount of energy that's being used. People love to make claims like, oh, Bitcoin is using too much energy. And the reality is like Bitcoin uses far less energy than like clothes dryers in the United States, but because it is harder to quantify the amount of energy that is used in clothes dryers—it's easier for people to dismiss that.
1: But you can also see that I, I've seen that both ways, right? Because people can exaggerate, but they can also diminish and be like, "Oh, well, Bitcoin is just using less energy than this fairly medium country." And it's like, okay, that's still a lot of energy. Bitcoin does very use true. a lot of energy, but we can talk about this. But to, to my point, it's—it's it's, you're using energy for a very good purpose. I mean, people are Absolutely using energy yeah. to, to, you know, to create. You know, they're trying to create a form of currency that really liberates people and protects their rights. And also, I mean, this is is the goal of it. I'm not an expert in Bitcoin, but I I totally agree with the intention of it. And so my view is, like, that is a good reason to use energy. And that's why people are choosing to use energy for this purpose. So if, if that much energy is good or more is good for having an amazing financial system, then we should use that energy, just like we should do it to build ourselves a shelter or irrigate uh, farmland or anything else. So we shouldn't we shouldn't at all accept this idea that oh, energy is bad, and we should hope to use less of it. In general, a progressing world is going to be a world that finds new and better ways to use energy, uh, and that's that's I think Bitcoin is an example of that. I talk about that in chapter five. How that's how I think of Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. It is a mistake to try to engage within that frame and try to argue those points of like, Oh, it uses less energy Let's say Bitcoin uses less energy than dryers or less energy than, you know, always on electronics because you're then accepting this, this fundamentally flawed frame. You got to break out of that yeah, I mean, frame. You,
1: can, you and, can refute. Yeah. I mean, you can, it's, it, you just want to be on a pro energy pro human pro like improving the earth frame. And then you can say, yeah, in fact, they are, they are distorting it. Um, you know that that that's that's totally okay to say. And look, if Bitcoin, like if Bitcoin is somehow using ninety nine percent of the world's energy, there would be something wrong. So, right, there would be just there would be some malfunction in the system, because uh, you don't want your currency using that much of your of your energy. It defeats a lot of the purpose of having indirect exchange. But so it's good it's good to refute these kinds of exaggerations. But again, the, what you said is right. The you do not want to concede the anti energy. We should minimize energy framework.
0: Alex, I'm curious what you just maybe think people need to be aware of or do to not fall into these traps. While those of us on this call may understand that the media does not have our best interest in mind, unfortunately, our country has shown us that a majority of the people don't quite recognize
2: that yet. What are you talking about, Q? That was a joke.
1: <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot. Um, I'm curious, did you, do you remember in, in chapter one, I talk about the knowledge system? Uh, so, so for me this was a really helpful concept that I developed for you know thinking about quote the media, but I think of it in a little bit different way now. So you know we have this issue where we're a specialized society which is amazing and we need to gain and apply expert knowledge to make good decisions and including good policies right So if we're making decisions about fossil fuels which involve energy and impacting climate among some other things, we need to we need experts, knowledge about energy and about climate. We can't just make it up out of our heads. And we, we don't know in advance what is the cost effectiveness of fossil fuels versus solar. I mean, like you, you can't know that without having expert research into it, nor can you know the impacts of rising CO2 levels, positive and negative. And so one thing you have to realize, though, is that when you are told that the experts say X, that is a result of a process that can go wrong in many ways, and this is what I call our knowledge system. Now our knowledge system is a good thing, but it is a very fallible thing. And the the quick version is that there are four basic stages that go between the basic discovery or attempted discovery of knowledge and then action. So the stages are research, where it's the basic researchers doing things, and there are a lot of those. And then there were, what's this, there's the stage of synthesis. So I call these synthesizers, people like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, who are taking a vast body of research and trying to condense, synthesize it to make it useful. And then they are what I call disseminators, people who are trying, they condense that even further and they deliver it to us. So that's the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera. And then there are evaluators, the people who tell us that, okay, given certain views of what's true, here's how we should act. So, so an example would be, you have researchers who are looking at what are the impacts of rising CO2 levels on drought. And then there are you know synthesizers who try to put that all together and then there are disseminators. But let's say, let's say that it's done accurately, which is very hard to do. But let's say it's disseminated as, okay, fossil fuels will increase drought by 10% in the next four years or something like that, right? The evaluators still have to determine what do you do about that? And what people often jump to is, oh, they're gonna cause drought, more drought, so we should get rid of them. But no, evaluating it properly, as I said before, you need to look at the full context of factors. So you need to look at things like, well, what are the benefits of fossil fuels, including the, the ability to master drought by irrigation? And would you rather have 10% more natural drought, but the ability to irrigate the whole world? I certainly would. And, and so when you, when you are told like the experts say X or listen to the scientists do this, you know that a fraud is being perpetrated because no specific researcher can know exactly what to do. They they can't determine that and then just give it to you in an authoritarian way because it involves involves knowledge from many different fields. And then another thing I stress is it involves specific values. So one, one value issue that people aren't often aware of is when we're thinking about the world, what is our primary goal? And I think of it as, is your goal to eliminate human impact on nature, which I think is a very popular goal now that I deeply disagree with, or is your goal to advance human flourishing uh, on Earth? Like, So eliminate human impact on Earth, advance human flourishing on Earth. You you need to know the values. And so just one final example of this is COVID, where I think one of the things that really went wrong, in addition to the things going wrong in earlier phases, was the people making the evaluations, their goal was eliminate COVID at all costs. It was eliminate this virus at all costs but they didn't state that explicitly and they didn't say hey this is an this is a value issue that's debatable they just said oh we're the experts you should do this so what they did is they smuggled in a value issue trading on their factual expertise and that is a real crime and that happens all the time so when you hear listen to the scientists a you the scientists could easily be being distorted by our knowledge system and b whether it's distorted or not the evaluation is being foisted upon you without you thinking about it. You always need to think about what is the method of evaluation being used here.
2: You put it very eloquently, but as a society, we prioritize the perception that we are thinking critically rather than the act itself. So you are are encouraged to believe that if you are following the scientists or following the experts, that that means that you are a rational human actor. But the reality is much darker in that these are, or not even darker, it's just the way it is, which is all, as you said, all these scientists, all these experts have their own agendas and to not consider those agendas and the, the structural incentives that are in place for each of these, um, these people is a huge mistake and very, very dangerous.
1: And you should all like, uh, as I said before, you just want to always be on the lookout for... Like, what's their method of evaluation? So are they carefully looking at benefits and side effects? And then insofar as it comes up, what are their values? Like, can you see that and do you agree with their values? And then, you know, one other thing that I look at, and this is, I think of all these as part of your framework, which is the starting structure of your thinking is what are your assumptions? So so one thing people follow me on Twitter at, at Alex Epstein, I have this daily feature called catastrophizing which shows all of these false predictions from the, fa- the past that turned out to be 180 degrees wrong, but that were made by what I call designated experts who are sort of the heroes of the knowledge system that supposedly speak for all experts. And you see them saying, oh, we're gonna run out of resources by 2000, right? Or a billion people are gonna die from climate related causes by 2020. And it's no, actually there are far fewer people dying. So they're, they're not just wrong. I had to make up a new term for this. They're, the, they're 180 degrees wrong. It's like much worse than just regular wrong. And there's this question of why, how is it possible that these designated experts are so wrong? And one thing that's definitely going on is a false assumption. In general, when you see very false predictions, look for false assumptions that are distorting people's expectations about cause and effect. And in this case, what is that? It's, there's this assumption that human impact on nature is inevitably going to be self-destructive and i call this the delicate nurture assumption because it's the idea that nature exists in this delicate nurturing balance that is stable sufficient and safe, oh god and then our impact ruins it and it, yeah. it has a very religious i forget you mentioned something before that that prompted me to think about there's a very religious quality to how we think about science today because remember it's like listen to the scientists And this is another religious i would say primitive anti-human religious element where we think of nature as this perfect thing and then everything we do is going to ruin it and nature is going to punish us so even with all these designated experts even though they're wrong we keep thinking they're going to be right because we think oh this time we're going to destroy the delicate nurture okay it wasn't resource depletion it wasn't extreme pollution it wasn't global cooling it hasn't been global warming but of course it's going to be destroyed. Of course, the UN is going to be right this time because we have this dogma that it's a delicate nurture. And so whenever you have those kinds of dogmas, these false assumptions that people don't get rid of, you can get unlimited false predictions from very, quote, educated people.
2: There's another really interesting aspect here, which is, and I agree with everything you just said, one thing that is continually uh, infuriating, fascinating to me is that when these designated experts um, or even just people, individuals, when there is a statement that is made that is demonstrably false, and it's like, or rather that, that in, in the future is demonstrably false, you know, mm-hmm. X is the, like, you know, somebody will say, um, because of X, Y is the outcome, we must do Z. And mm-hmm. then six months later, that is demonstrably false. It's like, oh, that was a massive mistake, you were responsible for uh, a huge amount of, uh, of pain and suffering. Nobody is held accountable. It's just like, oh, yeah, that was a thing that happened. But it's not, actually, it's worse than that. There is no acknowledgement of that's a thing that happened, let alone, oh, this was an error. How can we learn from this error? It's just moving on, next thing, focus on this new shiny object. And by shiny object, I mean this new narrative or argument uh, or claim that is being made. And I think we saw that a lot with COVID. Um, these these statements were being made that uh, you know New York was devolving into chaos, and there were these you know, stories that came out around these refrigerated trucks that were just filled with bodies, and it was this whole thing. And then none of that really materialized, but no one is held account. No one is held well, to the, account for that.
1: The COVID one is is fascinating. So here's a here's a depressing question that I I thought of thinking about COVID, which is. What percentage of people think that they were wrong in some significant way in their predictions about COVID? And it no, seems like it's 5%, that. it seems like everyone thinks they were right. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing. Why do people think they're right? Given that almost all of us were wrong in some non-trivial way. And now, of course, I, I mean, I'm gonna. it's weird for me to say, because I think I was more right than most people, right? But that could show the point I'm about. But I, I wrote all my stuff down very clearly just so that it could be documented and people could see. And, and I focus mostly on the policy, on how to deal with it. And, and I think that's pretty, stood up pretty well. But uh, look, I could be distorted by this uh, as well. And I think what happens is, look, there is this, I mean, we have different values, but let's say there is a, you know, a very bad virus that was damaging that some people understated and some people overstated. And in any case, I think the policies were anti-freedom policies that were not the right policies. Which maybe as a discussion for another time. But what happens is people feel like, well, there's, there's always something wrong about the other position. Like even if you said, oh, it's only gonna kill 500 people. Well, you can say the policies the other side did were wrong and draconian and did more harm than good. and That's probably true. But you're not owning up the part of it that you were wrong about. And the other side can say, oh, well, I said it was gonna be really dangerous. Sure, I, I exaggerated it by 10. Or I did these policies that may be questionable, but I was kind of right.
2: Yes, yeah, so but if, I was just.
1: You, know, you can always take some element where you're right and fo- it's just like when couples get in arguments, it's like there always somebody is right about something, right. And so the, the real art of being objective here is stepping back and like itemizing what was I right about and what what was I, uh, what was I wrong about? And I think one of the things that makes it hard is that challenging assumptions and values is hard. So for the people who are in favor of lockdown, like they had values that we, that like the government should take care of us and it should control us if they think there's a threat to public health and that's their view. And the other side has the opposite. And then um, assumptions, like there's assumption that if you let human beings be free, it's going to be chaos. Like if you had let us decide on these things, we'd have just all infected each other and died immediately. So it's a perfect example of like how how hard it is to be objective about your own track record and what I show in chapter two of Fossil Future, which is called catastrophizing side effects, is that our knowledge system, including its, its star designated experts, they're insanely bad because they've been ignoring the benefits and totally catastrophizing the side effects of fossil fuels. And yet they claim vindication. So it's not just they ignore it. They proudly say, hey, we were right. And in fact, they say it's worse than we thought even though you have people like John Holdren, President Obama's science advisor said, we're gonna have up to a billion climate-related deaths by 2020, and we had record low climate-related deaths. And he still thinks that he's been vindicated. So when this happens, we really need to say, what is, like, A, we need to hold them accountable, but B, we need to ask why, why are they doing this? And I think the two reasons are assumptions and values. So one is the assumption, Holdren thinks the earth is a delicate nurture. So yeah, he was a little early and a billion too high, but he thinks he's wrong. He's right in 10 years, right? Because of his assumption. And then yeah. with the, val- the values as the key is the most important part though, I think is that for Holdren and others, their goal is not advancing human flourishing on earth. It's eliminating human impact on earth. So from that perspective, the earth has gotten worse because we've impacted it more. We have impacted climate more, we've impacted the Earth more, and his view is that's evil, and so we shouldn't do it. So it's really, he's evaluating the Earth, not by the standard of advancing human flourishing, but by eliminating human impact, uh, with the ultimate ideal being an Earth where we didn't exist, which is really, that's the logical end road. And so that's the only way to explain how can he think the world has really gotten worse, despite being exposed to all the facts that I discuss in Fossil Future
2: there's one other thing i want to say and then q i want to turn it back over to you to help us you know stay on track in the conversation but because i'm dragging us in all these different directions um you said something that that uh that really hits a chord with me which is this idea that uh of this sort of like i think you called it a delicate nurture nature nature is this this magical delicate balance that hangs on a a hair's you know weight or the weight of a whatever the fuck and i don't mean that to you i mean like whatever 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 thing people are making up that like is the the, the thing that's going to break the camel's back and as you say the reality is nature is constantly in in flux the, the the definition of any ecosystem is one where there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of actors from uh you know carnivores to herbivores to individual microbes everything is in conflict at all times and the beauty and the uh, of of an evolutionary system and a system that is driven by evolution is that this conflict breeds successful strategies. It's mm-hmm. only through this, this push and this pull and this back and this forth that you derive these incredibly complex food webs. And mm-hmm. the idea that humans are, I, I, people think, seem to think of us as being separate from these complex systems. People seem to think of humans as being this, this godlike entity who has, you know, universal knowledge of everything that's happening. And the reality is, we know so little, we have to basically be able to accept that all of these systems are constantly evolving in a positive direction. Or not Not, not that we have to accept that. But everything is in flux all the time. And nothing is in this magical, delicate balance. It's not that if you put one more thing on the scale, it's going to crash to the ground and be destroyed. It's that's what. that's what ecologies are that's how systems work they're always in flux they're always in in in, in dynamic action
1: and, and just one quick point about that as i call this from from the a human perspective i call nature wild potential because you think of it as the potential to be a very livable place but it's naturally like the, the myth is it's stable sufficient and safe or is it's actually dynamic deficient and dangerous for human beings and so we need to do a lot to transform it and it's true we don't have perfect knowledge but we know that if we don't become really, really productive, then we're not going to have sufficient nourishment, safety from the elements, opportunity to enjoy ourselves. We know that for sure. And that brings us to energy, right? Because we need energy to take our very physically weak bodies and make ourselves so productive that we can overcome this dynamic, deficient, and dangerous earth but and create a world of abundance and safety.
0: Alex, I want to bring the conversation back now to focus a little bit more on the fossil fuels. And one thing I I think gives us a good segue here is you highlight a few different facts that have been presented to us that are actually not true. And I'm going to try my best to read off a couple right now, Um, chiefly just the idea of productivity or the idea that, you know, uh, solar or wind energy is better for the environment than fossil fuels, but it doesn't actually, you know, going back to this idea of taking the full contextual scope of the con- or the full context at play there. Uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe that example in particular, wind, solar, and fossil fuels, and the lies that were being spun out and what, you know, the full context looks like.
1: Sure. So just to connect this to the to the last point we we're talking about because it's it's very relevant. Is you know the world is not a delicate nurture. It's wild potential. It's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. We need to become extremely productive in order to flourish. And to become productive, we we need super productive. We need machines to do most of our physical work for us. And so energy, is what enables us to do that. But the energy has to be cost effective. And I have four basic uh, dimensions of cost effectiveness. So one is it has to be low cost. It also has to be reliable slash controllable because if it's not, then you can't use it when you need it in the quantities you need it It needs to be versatile. So it needs to be able to power every form of machine imaginable, including hard to power things like giant cargo ships and airplanes. And then it needs to be on a global scale of billions of people in thousands of places. And and the fact of the matter is there's only one uh, source of energy That right now provides what i call ultra cost effective energy that checks all four boxes and that's the fossil fuels so oil coal and natural gas and those combined provide 80 percent of the world's energy including even more of its transportation energy and what's called its industrial heat energy so generating a lot of heat for various industrial processes like steel making and it's also growing fast which is very important and it's growing fast particularly in the parts of the world that care most about low cost reliable energy such as china that's about 84 percent fossil fueled and is using a lot of coal electricity in particular to make our supposedly green solar panels and wind turbines so these the basic fact is that fossil fuels unless you're a total conspiracy crank you know there's something special about fossil fuels because they've had competition for generations they're still 80% and growing. They're, they are uniquely cost-effective. They're used in places like Japan that would rather not use them because they don't have domestic resource. So what's, what's going on? And you have to recognize there's clearly something there. And, and the two basic factors are, there's something very special about the materials involved. And then there's something very special about the amount of economic ingenuity that is involved. So the basic things are the materials are, they're naturally stored, concentrated, and abundant. Stored is important because it allows you. It's, it's like a battery. It's like a natural battery. You can just access it on demand, uh, which is really really nice. Because making your own batteries turns out to be really really expensive for most purposes. Certainly for storing a lot of energy. Uh, and then concentrated is great, particularly for transportation, because the the smaller and lighter energy is in usable form, then the more mobility you can have. Like an airplane requires very very dense energy. If it had a battery, it would never take off. So. And then abundant, obviously, you need that if it's going to be on a on a global scale. So, and then the other thing is, is it's not just the, the materials exist, because those materials have been around forever for, for all intents and purposes, but there have been generations of economic ingenuity and achievement that have been harnessed to turn these once useless raw materials into energy for for. Um, billions of people and their machines. So it's just this massive achievement. It's just like, think about silicon and microchips. Like, yes, yeah, silicon has great properties to be a semiconductor, but there's still generations of innovation and achievement to have a global microprocessor and microchip industry. And to replace that, even with a comparable material would be really, really hard. It would just take a long time, but imagine trying to in, uh, replace it with an inferior material. And basically with solar and wind, is very difficult because you're dealing with the sun and the wind, which they are abundant, but they are not stored. They are intermittent flows of energy that most of the time are not available and certainly not available in the quantities that you happen to want energy in. Uh, And then they're very dilute. So to harness them, you need to take up enormous amounts of space and you need very large amounts of materials to be mined as well as things like transmission lines so these are, these are the realities. You could imagine things where if, if you could get batteries cheap enough on some uh, crazy scale maybe, but we're nowhere near that. So in fact, the, the situation is in practice, solar and wind are used as supplements to these reliable, controllable sources of energy, mostly fossil fuels, to some extent also um, hydro and, and nuclear. And we could talk about nuclear, which I think is the most promising, but it's mostly fossil fuels giving life support to the solar and wind. And yet that is not acknowledged in these things. I mentioned the levelized cost of electricity, which a lot of people use. And they're just just—they're just denying the fact that these right now are parasites. And that if you look at the places that are using them on a large scale and you do valid accounting, you see that they increase the price of electricity because you have to have the 100% reliable grid. And then you have to have all of this unreliable energy infrastructure uh, on top of it. So, and, and then what happens is if you, if you are upset that you're paying more money, then you try to cut back down on reliable infrastructure. That's what we've done where I live in California. And then you, you face blackout. So the fact is these things are right now, they're parasites that are increasing costs and decreasing reliability. And yet that is not being acknowledged. It's not being acknowledged that they're a failure now. And then there is this insane speculation that these parasites that provide 3% of the world's energy which the world still needs much more energy, can in 27 and a half years provide 100% of the world's energy for the whole world There's using things that have never been tried, using an amount of mining and, and infrastructure development that is completely unprecedented and it, and happening in an anti-development environment because all context here we're trying to be green and solar and wind require more development, more mining than these others. So this is not going to be allowed to happen and we're seeing that. It's very hard to even do this stuff in the first place. So I consider this whole movement just to be in massive denial of reality and to be engaging in just massively dishonest projections uh, about the future. And my ultimate explanation of the leaders is they don't really care about energy and ultimately uh, advancing human flourishing on Earth. They're just looking for an excuse to oppose fossil fuels. And so their excuse is, oh, we've got this exciting green energy. Don't worry about it. It'll work. But I think we're seeing right now with this energy crisis, it does not work to try to even slowly replace fossil fuels with what I call these unreliables, and that's why we're having threats, we're having skyrocketing prices, uh, blackouts, and threats of starvation. So we need we need to reeducate the world and reverse course. This is this is really a travesty.
0: I'd also love it if if you maybe dive into the apocalypse, like your word was apocalyptic. The idea to go to To carbon neutral or zero carbon emissions for a lot of these areas. Like I'm in Los Angeles in California as well, and we have our dictator governor trying to push forward this legislation. While like I, I still drive a gas car when I drive around. Like I don't see gas prices going down anytime soon, and I don't see the reliance on gas vehicles really diminishing in this state. You touch on. We haven't really dived down this rabbit hole yet, but I kind of want to set the stage for this. You touch on a a very interesting fact and. My big takeaway was the idea that these sort of restrictions around carbon emissions are more impactful to the poorer communities and poorer countries than they are for more developed nations. Like, look, Los Angeles, California is probably one of the more well-off regions of the world, if not this country. And they are afforded uh, certain privileges as a result to their energy independence or their access to energy that, that we have talk a little bit about you know what what the detrimental effects of going to a carbon neutral strategy could be if we're not properly prepared to make that transition
1: it's very hard to communicate how murderous an idea carbon neutral by 2050 is because it's i've tried to break this i mean i've tried to break this idea that we're, we're told the experts say in any way Uh, is a proper representation and interpretation of of what the real expert research is, but this is a case where it's just beyond the pale, in, in my view, because what we're saying is, again, so we have energy as this crucial value without which human beings cannot be productive and prosperous, It's desperately lacked by most of the world. uh, Three billion people, for example, use less electricity than one of our refrigerators. So we need much more energy. Fossil fuels are clearly a uniquely cost-effective source of this thing that keeps us alive, including literally feeds us. And we're already seeing that you know, pretty modest restrictions on fossil fuel development compared to what has been advocated and fairly modest mandates of unreliable solar. wind. Mean, we're already seeing that pushing us into a global energy crisis where Germany, for example, can be killed basically on demand by Russia, which can cut off its gas. And, you know, depending on the season, you know, when it's winter can, you know, just can cause people to freeze to death. Like, and we're saying in this situation, we are going to, you know, deck tuple down, And we're going to get rid of all CO2 emissions in the next 27 and a half years. And this is going to work when there's not one place in the world or person in the world who's prosperous, that is in any meaning, in any scalable way, I should say carbon neutral. So this is important. There's not one human being in the world who is in a scalable way, carbon neutral. That is something other people could do. I mean, yeah, you could buy a bunch of trees somewhere and make up some accounting around it, but you cannot plant enough trees to offset everyone's, uh, emissions. It's like, I think of it as, you know, if you claim your carbon neutral through offsets or something, that's, 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 there aren't many offsets that are really available that actually work. It's kind of like beachfront property. So it's like, if, if, you know, Bill Gates just says, like, I live in Laguna beach, it's like, okay, Bill Gates uh, buys up all the beachfront property in my beach in Laguna beach. And he's like, look, I saved the world by buying this thing that nobody, almost nobody else can buy. Like it's a, it's a scam. So look, the fact is we cannot. Like you would literally end billions of lives prematurely by pursuing this goal. Now, the thing is, we are not going to pursue this goal. Let's just be very clear. This is not actually going to happen in the way that it is specified. But the attempt to pursue it, we're already seeing is very, very dangerous. And, and I mentioned at the end of the book, and you remember, this research was done a couple years ago, but it really has predicted today already. I talk about you know one of the big threats is what I call incentivized unempowerment for the poor world. So the poorest people in the world being pressured into uh, not using fossil fuels. And we're seeing this with banks denying them funding and all sorts of strings attached to them not using fossil fuels. Uh, The thing thing most relevant to Americans is what I call unilateral disempowerment. And it applies to Europe as well, which is the freer countries saying, hey, we're going to abandon fossil fuels or at least do something in that direction. And even though China and Russia are not. And they have real ambition, certainly China, of world domination. And so what we have is this crazy spectacle where we're diminishing our ability to produce the energy that we need. We're pretending we're going to get it from solar and wind, which by the way, is entirely controlled supply chain wise by China. And then China is using coal, oil, and natural gas to power their whole economy. And they control the green inferior anti-economy. And this is Like this is a real policy. So what's great is this is already starting to get exposed by the current energy crisis. And some of these facts are coming to light, but it was, I was fighting for years, just talking about this and nobody was listening. So the one nice thing about having a crisis is that people will start uh, to listen. And I think we have a perfect moment where people's minds are open to maybe the way I've been taught to think about this is quite wrong.
0: So you're telling me all those carbon credits that Tesla keeps getting don't actually help the environment.
1: <laughs> well, that, that, that that's a different, I mean, that's another kind of thing. Well, yeah, Tesla is an, inter- Elon is a very interesting uh, character, which by the way, he, he blocked me uh, like eight years ago because I wrote, I wrote an article, a popular article called the Tesla, with the Tesla S, uh, Elon Musk has created a really good fossil fuel car. So I, <laughs> I praise the car. <laughs> And I, I do praise the car, but it's obviously it's a you know it's a fossil fuel car.
2: That's yeah, you're just putting fuel the there. fossil fuels somewhere else in the in the chain. Yeah. But if you don't see them burning, you didn't do it, right?
1: Right, ex- that's, ex- that's exactly. That's the
2: rationale. More importantly, I was just gonna say if the government tells you that you are a better person, then it's true.
1: Uh, I, I thought, yeah, well, that's true too. I thought you were gonna say, yeah, well, if if the burning and any pollution uh and consequences are being suffered by a poor people that you can't see that look different than you then it's totally okay i mean that seems to be the the premise right because yeah oh yeah well we're getting cobalt in africa and i don't really care about these kids there, and there's there's literal slaves in china being involved in solar panel and we don't care what's his name uh uh, he's an interesting guy, but the guy who said, who's the guy who said it wasn't, it's not my pay grade or it's, no. It's oh, Chamath
0: Palihapitiya. Yeah, Chamath oh, this is an
1: interesting guy. I'd love to talk to him sometime. But below
0: that, my line. It's below
1: my, my line. line. Right. But it's interesting. That's a, that's not kind of a human flourishing line because it's really important if you think every individual should have the opportunity to be free and pursue uh, you know, productivity and happiness. But yeah, it's like, oh, there's some other place and nobody's talking about it. Everyone's talking about climate change. So we got to care about that. But yeah, actual, literal slaves, like that. It's not us, right? So, so th- there's this. Yeah, it's the, the carbon credits is another. I mean, there's a lot of scam around that. But yeah, the, the key point is there is no scalable known way to uh, reduce CO two emissions without incurring an enormous human cost in the next coming decades. The closest is, and the thing we should do is we should liberate the most promising alternatives particularly nuclear, which has been criminalized, and I argue that if we hadn't virtually criminalized nuclear in the 70s, we could have a much more nuclear-powered world uh, already, but unfortunately, we do live in the world that we live in, and it's going to take generations for nuclear to scale up, even if we change the policy now, which I'm working very hard to improve the policy, uh, so... It needs to be a fossil future if you want it to be a good future. If you want it to be an energized future, we could talk about the climate part of it, but whatever you think about the climate impacts of fossil fuels going forward, for billions of people to have the low-cost, reliable, versatile, uh, scalable energy they need to flourish requires fossil fuels. So that's like fact one in the book. It's like part two is the benefits, and that's the benefit. The benefit of fossil fuels that you lose if you oppose fossil fuels is energizing the world. So... You can then talk about the side effects, but you have to recognize if you get rid of fossil fuels, you are losing that benefit, which means the world becomes a horrible place. So when you're thinking about, you're worried about, oh, climate change, one degree more, two degrees more, that's going to make the world a horrible place. Know that taking all the energy out of our machines, that is going to make the world into a wasteland. Because the world, it was hard to support 500 million people with primitive way of life. Eight billion people depend on a very, very machine-based way of life
2: here's the thing alex it's okay if orphans in third world countries are burning trash to extract rare metals because they're in harmony with nature
1: (laughs) well the, the it's funny the harmony of nature is the wood yeah the wood and animal dung at least right it's like it's a natural thing to just yeah you just take your local environment and whatever is available you burn it right so you have dung and then you have wood and then but of course what do you do you cut down the forests because when human beings try to empower themselves, they cut down the force. And so the ultimate real thing is look, if your goal is to eliminate human impact on Earth, you just have to eliminate humans. There's no that's why overpopulation. And that's the crux of it. Yeah, but that's that's the ultimate thing. But it in the 70s, it was very explicit. They're very explicitly anti-technology, because technology is really like using ingenuity to impact nature. So if you're against impact, you're against technology. And there's anti-population. But both of those became unfashionable, particularly when computer technology really popularized technology. Um, and then you're, and then with overpopulation, it just was so clearly murderous uh, to say, hey, there are too many of these people. So what we have right now is this contradiction where people say, oh, I love technology and I love people, uh, but I wanna take away all the energy. And by the way, I also wanna, this is very revealing, also I oppose nuclear and also I oppose hydro. And also I oppose mining and building and laying transmission lines, which are necessary for solar and wind. So the, one of my points is our whole knowledge system is anti-impact. It's anti-all forms of impact and therefore anti-all forms of energy. And so the, 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 all these claims about green energy, they're just a pretense. They, they don't hold up in, in practice at all, and they're totally insincere because the idea behind them it would prevent them from happening. Uh, you would never allow the amount of mining and development that they would require if if you're on this premise of being
2: green. But I think the thing that, I don't don't think anyone on this call would disagree with this, but going all the way back to the beginning, I really like your approach, which is like critically examine the structures that are in place that underpin these misinformed opinions. Because the reality is like, no one is a villain in their own story, right? And people who I would argue are on the wrong side of this no one is like, yeah. I mean, there are certain people who are like, yes, like let's crush human ingenuity, let's like have people suffer. And so I think I think the solution here, which you are succeeding wildly at with this book, is how can we educate people and really help people to form and develop these, you know, critical uh, faculties so that they can come to. Their own conclusions whether or not we agree with them but at least conclusions that are based in reality and fact
1: as yeah, so I, I do think that, that that's an interesting point about people being a hero in their mind and i try to so my view is that most people on this issue who are thinking about it and what i would consider an anti-human way don't know they're thinking about an anti-human way and I, I go to pretty big lengths to kind of explain how anti-human thinking is disguised how false assumptions are disguised how anti-human values are uh, disguised. I talk a lot about that, particularly in, in, in chapter three of the book, uh, which is all about, it's called the anti-impact framework, which is, I call that the, that's this view that again, human impact is immoral because our goal should be to eliminate human impact on earth. And it's inevitably self-destructive because the earth is a delicate nurture. And if you have that perspective, you, you automatically ignore the benefits of fossil fuels from a human flourishing perspective, because A, they're not benefits from an eliminating impact perspective. And B, you expect them to be like a, nat- a nature god punishing us. Because you think it's a delicate nurture so you think all the benefits are ephemeral. They're going to disappear uh, soon. and so, so what I try to do then is, I don't think most people understand these frameworks. I think the leaders don't even fully understand it. So I don't think even the leaders fully understand it. But I think there's a lot of evasion and a lot of dishonesty. and I give plenty of examples of this from my own experience, including things you can see in public. But so what my view is, when you make what are, you know, what are our assumptions, what are our values, and what are our methods? If you make that explicit, it's so helpful. That's why you know, 90 page part one, 95 page part one, maybe even longer, that's called a framework. And it's all the whole purpose of it is to establish the, the people and institutions that we're trusting to give us expert and knowledge guide, expert knowledge and guidance, what I call our knowledge system are fundamentally malfunctioning, so they're ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels and catastrophizing side effects. And the reason is that they are operating on this anti-impact framework. And so to get to the truth, we need a different framework, which I call the human flourishing framework, where again, the assumption is nature, is the earth is wild potential, not a delicate nurture. The goal is to advance human flourishing on earth, not to eliminate human impact. And we need to look at the full context to evaluate fossil fuels, both carefully weighing the benefits and this, and, and carefully weighing the side effects. And so like, I find that once you do that, like people think like, why are you doing that? Just talk about energy, just tell me the facts, but it's really, once you have an understanding of the competing frameworks that are usually implicit and not discussed, it's so much easier to think about it. And it's so much easier to persuade other people uh, once you get it. And so that that's so much of the, my view is 90% of disagreement and confusion about this issue is related to framework. Because I think the facts are actually fairly straightforward. I don't think there's much real confusion a possible about, are fossil fuels really uniquely cost-effective for the foreseeable future? I think it's pretty obvious. And this might even seem controversial. But with climate, I don't think it's very controversial if you look at the facts that we are going to have an amazing ability to master climate going forward, and that nothing conceivable that can happen with warming and associated climate changes is going to be a huge problem, let alone a catastrophe, let alone an apocalypse. So I, I want to make clear, we will definitely impact climate, or very confident we'll impact climate, we'll make it warmer, it'll be a more tropical world to some extent, and overall it'll be a much better world uh, because we will be so empowered. I think that's. I think both of those are very hard to argue with once you're on the right framework. Uh, but if you're not on the right framework, then it seems like, well, fossil fuels have no benefits. And impacting the earth, of course, is going to destroy it because the earth is a delicate nurture. And of course, it's going to punish us with climate apocalypse. Therefore, we have 12 years to live. So we should listen to the scientists and get rid of fossil fuels.
0: One thing we haven't really had a chance to talk about um, is this framework of an idea that you presented in the book where you know some of the problems that fossil fuels have created can also be solved or mitigated if we were allowed sort of the freedom to just solve the problem however we see fit i.e if the free market could just operate without restrictions of a government telling you what to do or how to do it can you expand on this idea and some of the uh, thoughts you bring up in the book in this context?
1: Yeah, a couple of important aspects. So, what is is I'm using, you know, I use the analogy of a prescription drug or van- vaccine or antibiotic, and it's a good it's a good analogy, but also a problematic analogy. So, the the reason it's a good analogy is these are things with very big benefits that we recognize we need to weigh benefits and side effects. That's what's good about it. But there's something even better about fossil fuels and energy in general, which is that their benefits can actually neutralize and and and, and eliminate their side effects. So with anything, you know, the benefits can overwhelm the side effects, the value can be greater, but with fossil fuels, they can actually neutralize them in the area and and even overwhelm them in the area of the side effects. So I use the example of drought, and this is a real thing that's happened where whatever has happened with fossil fuels and drought, uh, in terms of how nature has been impacted, drought-related disaster deaths are down 99% over the last 100 years. Why? Well, clearly a big reason is we have fossil fuel irrigation we also have fossil fuel drought relief, where we have these amazing vehicles that can take places with bountiful harvests and bring their harvest to places that are, that don't have good harvests, and this you know saves millions and millions of lives uh, over time. You know certainly many many lives in the, the poorest parts of the world. So, like in a fossil fuels, like it cured its own side effect. Like the, the no vaccine cures its own side effect, no drug that I know of cures its own side effect, but fossil fuels can actually cure. Its own side effects, and they're, they're the broader issue that you were, I think, getting at is this is part of the thing where, um, in a free society, like problems, side effects can be they can be uh, they can be lessened, you know, they can be neutralized, they can actually even turn into good things. So one example of like, negatives can be turned into positives if you're free and if you're empowered with with uh cost effective energy so there's so many examples of this uh one is just an example i love is you take the winter like the winter used to be almost a universal liability because human beings are tropical uh creatures despite we're worried about so much about warming the world is is much too cold for most people because you know we have like multiple times many times more cold related deaths than heat related deaths so but with technology including machines we can make cold parts of the earth amazing and you know, a cold part of the earth can be a wonderful place. Like Utah can be an amazing place to visit in the winter, which used to be inconceivable, right? But it's actually a liability turns into an asset because you have a higher degree of freedom, which leads to a higher degree uh, of, of mastery. And another example is with pollution. You take uh, oil, like oil used to just be something that you, you sort of sloppily refined it for kerosene to light a lamp. And then you threw half of it in the lake, where it's a huge liability, but we figured out how to take that uh, byproduct. not I mean, you know, smart people in the past figured out how to do it. And they they figured out how to take it and to turn it into ultimately thousands of miraculous materials. You know, so we get asphalt from it. We might get insulation from it. You know, your sleep number bed, your Tempur-Pedic bed, your bulletproof vest. These are all derived from oil and or natural gas. And, and that's amazing, right? We turned waste- into wealth, so I agree with your general point totally. That like a free society leads to a an ever greater degree of mastery, including an ever de- greater degree of adaptability to problems, to the point where the problems are lessened and sometimes they're even reversed.
0: Thank you for making my very janky phrase sound so <laughs> much smarter and better and cleaner. So thank you for that. That's, Alex.
1: that's my that's my job. that's Um, that's a joke but i always tell like occasionally i'll have you guys are i think professional hosts but occasionally i'll have somebody hosting me and they'll just say like oh i don't know about this don't worry i i I will make this go well for you no matter what
0: (laughs) you have made this go go well for us so thank you very much alex we still have uh a little bit of time left and i don't want to uh derail us too much i do want to ask you though to maybe share a little bit on the transition you allude to in the book that you do see nuclear as a viable exit strategy to a degree talk a little bit about how that reality looks in your mind and how we can maybe get to that reality
1: so I definitely don't think of it as a transition. And I definitely don't think of it as an, I mean, certainly don't think of it as an exit strategy. So I think of energy, I, I talk about energy evolution. I think I talk about this in um, in chapter 10, I talk about it the most, because I talk about the freedom of competition and how that leads to uh, energy Evolution. Yeah. So as I said, I think the world, like I look at the world, if, if your perspective on the world is we want to advance human flourishing, which means really every individual on earth, you want to have the opportunity to have a productive, prosperous, happy life. Like you want that to be an option. The world needs much more energy. And that's, that's. I mean, you could say priority number one is more freedom, uh, but a huge aspect of that is the freedom to use energy, to produce and use energy, and all you need to make that possible is the freedom. You don't have to gift it to people. You just need you need more freedom around the world and stop impeding uh, the freedom. So that that is going to be it. You know that is uh, priority number one. And then I forgot what was the. I, I got slightly distracted. So and I, see, this just disproves what I said before because I said I was going to make it good for you, and then I just I just see you should never jinx brag. it. You never <laughs> brag. Uh, when you're being recorded. So wait, what was the, um, oh, right. Okay. I'm back the transition and then the exit. So the focus should be expanding human empowerment around the world. That should be a huge moral goal. Like a huge aspect of expanding human flourishing. There's expanding human freedom, expanding human empowerment via more cost-effective energy. So when you're on this framework and with these priorities, you, you don't think about, oh, how do I get rid of fossil fuels? How do I exit from them? Because that's not your focus. Your focus is we need more fossil fuels. We need more of anything like fossil fuels. And th- what you are looking, though, for is evolution. That is, you want something better than fossil fuels. You want to improve over time. And that's why you want to do things like liberate nuclear. But this idea of a transition, it's not a desirable in terms of rapidly eliminating. It's the opposite. I mean, it's a, murder. It's a mass murder prescription. So it's, it's the opposite of desirable. It's, it's a horrific idea. Um, and it's also just a false description of what's happening. And this is a very important distortion where people have been taught, particularly before this year, I think it was plausible that, oh, we're rapidly replacing fossil fuels. They, they weren't aware that fossil fuels are still 80% of the world's energy and growing significantly. They weren't aware of that because they thought, oh, yeah, everything is being powered by solar wind. I hear Apple claiming they're 100% renewable. Google like all this accounting fraud that I talk about in chapter 6 this is a total lie that they should really have a class action lawsuit for these claims because they're they operate on the fossil fuel grid just like anyone else um it's it's uh, so this idea of a transition is just factually false we've had an unreliable energy addition that's actually what's happened we've added a bunch of new unreliable energy to the world and and it's caused problems particularly because in the freer world we've restricted fossil fuel investment production and transportation and the world has growing energy needs and so that's putting a lot of uh, a lot of strain on the supply of fossil fuels. We don't have an energy transition, we have an energy addition that's unreliable energy. So exit strategy, transition to zero, these are all terrible anti-human ideas in in the motivation of the leaders and in fa- and in practice given the reality of energy But we should be pursuing energy evolution, but the main thing is just to have more freedom. And in the case of nuclear, that means radically reforming our policies, what I call decriminalizing nuclear to the point where we recognize that nuclear is actually the safest, not to mention cleanest form of energy uh, versus treating it as uniquely dangerous, which is the whole basis of treating it like a criminal enterprise.
0: Not only seeing the demonization of nuclear, but as P kind of alluded to at the very beginning of this conversation, we see the demonization of, you know, Bitcoin mining. And we, we're starting to see more and more these ideas or concepts that can truly attack, eliminate, and destroy the powers that be or the status quo, if you will, get attacked in so many different ways because you you have government leaders who don't want it you have businesses that don't want it and then you have the citizens who are being told what to believe and think i'm curious about the framework of you know between nuclear mining and the necessity of fossil fuels for the future where you think is the easiest place or the most likely place let me phrase that the most likely place that we can change the dialogue coming out whether it's businesses whether it's governments or whether it Whether it's actual citizens, the individuals who are going to change their framework of thinking, and then in turn change the dialogue around one or any of these topics.
1: One thing I think is important to say about Bitcoin, because I'll talk about persuasion and these and who to whom to focus on. But I think Bitcoin is the most impressive aspect, the most impressive example of pro freedom persuasion, certainly in the last ten years. I mean, I wish I wish I was at that level. Maybe I'll get to that level after this book, but but Bitcoin has definitely beaten me so far by a significant margin because you look at what has happened. So, uh, cause I, I, come from, you know, total free market, uh, background, like philosophically, like objectivist background. So I'm very, I believe in laissez-faire capitalism. Um, so I've always believed, I'm not always, but since I've thought it through, like I was against fiat money, I believe that, you know, currency should be free. I should believe we should be free to choose our means of indirect exchange. I don't think that should be forced uh, by anyone or by the government. And, like I believe that, but this was a total like crazy view that you couldn't even talk about, even five years ago, right? Nobody wanted to talk about. Nobody even knew the term fiat, and then suddenly the Bitcoin movement comes along, and fiat has gone into popular use, and central banking is demonized. I mean, look how the Fed is treated today. How money printing is treated. This is just unimaginable five years ago. And so what have you guys done? And I talk about this in chapter 11, not about Bitcoin, but about my framework for, the, for persuasion. I think what you've done is you've, what I call argue to 100. So, and that involves having a positive vision for the world, which I call a 100, and then an evil, a negative 100, and then also a positive policy to get there. So the vision in the case of Bitcoin, you know, is just something like, uh, you guys would say it better than I would, but something about like, you know, a world where of like free and secure currency and where, you know, we're not being, our our work is not being devalued by the state. And then on the other hand is like unlimited government control of money with the potential for hyperinflation. So whether that's right or not, it's like, you've got the negative 100 and you've got the 100. And and you really, there was a vision of that, you know, particularly with Bitcoin making certain new things possible because of, you know, what Satoshi developed. And then this policy, I mean, the main policy was buy Bitcoin, which that's a very clever policy in a lot of ways, because it's like, it's something people can do. And then it's something that people expect to appreciate and value, because if you're expecting it to become ubiquitous, then it, you're the first movers will have an advantage, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are other policies about, okay, here's what government should do, and here's what they shouldn't do. So it was really impressive that this whole area that had just been stagnating persuasively for a hundred plus years, even though the theory I think was really good, uh, the Bitcoin movement really just changed it. Like it really, really kind of broke the monopoly of fiat money and in fact, put it on the defensive. So I think that's been amazing. And I, I, what I've tried to do is the same thing with energy where it's it's am breaking out of this framework of, you know human impact is evil, eliminating impact is good, our goal should be to eliminate specifically CO2 emissions. The evil is more fossil fuels. I say, no, the goal is to advance human flourishing on earth, not to minimize human impact on earth. And then more fossil fuel use, if you look at the benefits and side effects, is the way to get there. And it's that positive vision and positive course of action that I think really inspires people and also allows you to much more effectively condemn the bad. So I think you guys have done that well. And, and you know one thing to think about, so I would say keep, if you, if you understand that, If that explicit understanding helps people, double down on that. So really double down on having a good vision, really double down on having concrete uh, policies and then criticizing the bad stuff uh, by reference to that. And then I think you should just always think about with audiences. I mean, you want to say things that would appeal to any audience, but in practice, it's natural that people who are more invested in the issue will be more of an audience. So for example, in the past couple of years, Bitcoin- Uh, the Bitcoin world has been a big audience for me because it's being attacked by anti-energy ideas. So people are particularly interested in that in a way they wouldn't be. Um, You know, I think I'm having a growing, let's say African audience, because there are people there who are realizing we're totally being screwed. And these ideas about a pro-human way of thinking about energy, including fossil fuels, like these will benefit us. So I don't know who the natural audiences are, but I would think about them and I would just The other thing finally is just the, the, the biggest rule of getting better at persuasion is always assuming that there's a better way of doing it. I mean, this is like, why did I, I had one of the most successful energy books, arguably the most persuasive energy book in the world. And I just basically threw it away and spent three, three years doing a new one because I believed that a much higher level of clarity and persuasiveness was possible. And so I find that to be a very useful thing is just always assume that you haven't figured it out. And even if you're good compared to others, you're nothing compared to what's possible. And I find that leads to a lot of innovation.
0: Alex, I wanted to give you the opportunity as we wind down here to maybe share one more point that we didn't ask you or that you just want to share either about this book, your last book, or just what you're seeing in the world.
1: So I think you know one really important thing is that we're at a very special moment in, in energy history. Uh, both because there's a lot of peril, but also I think there's an unprecedented, at least in, in my lifetime, and almost for, almost almost 42 now, to really change minds in a rapid way. And I think those of you in the Bitcoin world can attest to the fact that it's, it's possible to change minds in a rapid way, including on the most controversial of issues. Again, fiat money being one of the most controversial, but the point was it was uncontroversial, right? It was just totally entrenched. And now it's become controversial, and, and I put it as the moral monopoly has been broken. And I'm very explicit in chapter 11, like my proximate goal is to break the moral monopoly of the moral case for eliminating fossil fuels. And, and what this book is really is the moral case for a fossil future, that, that you can think of that as the full title of it. And that's, that's we, the Bitcoin people in particular, the world, Bitcoin world I should say, like should recognize that it's possible in Bitcoin. I think it's possible in energy. And there are two really good factors pointing to this. One is that those of us who are thinking about these issues in a a big picture or full context plus pro-human way are having a lot of success in moving people. So me, uh, Michael Schellenberger, now running for governor of California, like this is a pro, really pro-energy person, who who I think has a real shot at being governor of California, but it certainly has won a lot of hearts and minds has been on Joe Rogan a couple of times, Bjorn Lomborg, Steve Coonan, Matt Ridley, Robert Bryce. There's a growing number of what I call the energy humanists and we're having a lot of success and we're not, nobody is really answering us, which is a good sign that that we're onto something and that we're going to win over a lot more people. And then the other thing is this energy crisis, right? Because we have right now more open than ever to considering new ideas because Clearly the old ideas are not working. This establishment, this knowledge system that told us, oh yeah, we're gonna rapidly eliminate fossil fuels, but don't worry, we can rapidly replace it with green energy. That's clearly not happening. We have Joe Biden scrambling anywhere he can to get more fossil fuels, including from you know dictatorships like Venezuela. So I think there's an openness. So in this, in this respect, I'm really happy that it took me so goddamn long to finish this book uh, because it's coming out on May 24th, 2022 when we're sort of at the peak awareness of this energy crisis and when people are really open to it. And I do believe it's the next level in terms of persuasiveness. So everything that worked before for me and for others, I think this is on another level. Uh, and, and so I expect that you know, in terms of educating, you know, if you expect to disagree, I think like I think you did in advance, like you're gonna find it a lot more persuasive than you thought. And if you expect to generally agree, you're gonna find it a lot more of an empowering resource than you thought the final thing I would say is that it's um, I think it's May 24th now Uh, like a lot of book people book creators or authors like I I'm creating bonuses for people to get the week of because you wanted to hit the New York Times bestseller list Uh, not because that's so much fun but because a book become a controversial book becoming a blockbuster dramatically helps it reach new people and my only fear is that it gets suppressed and or ignored. I'm very confident. The main thing about a book is just you make it amazing, and then it spreads by word of mouth, and this helps facilitate it. So in that res- in that vein, I am uh, I kind of just created anything I could think of that would be amazing as a pre order bonus. So we have like a six month subscription to my Energy Talking Points Premium Substack, which is like kind of the best thing in the world on talking points for energy. That's included. That's a fifty dollar value. I have the Alex notes of the book. So this is like the Cliffs notes, but made by me. So it condenses, it's going to condense everything. It's coming out soon. Uh, And then maybe, oh, I have a a seminar on our live event called how to talk to anyone about climate change, which is specifically how to talk about the most controversial issue in the world and be effective, which I have a lot of experience at. And then maybe the thing people will be most interested in is that I had a live event with uh, uh, Peter Thiel, you know, who... Bitcoin world pretty much knows him right now based on that recent conference, if you didn't know him already. And he, I'm happy he endorsed both my books. And we had a 90 minute conversation about ener- the future of energy, security, and freedom. Uh, plus, it was hosted by Palmer Lucky, who's an amazing guy who created Oculus. And then Palmer and I had a follow up conversation. So it's just like a huge amount of content. And all you need to do is just buy the book this week, or if you bought it before, that's fine. And just send the receipt to fossilfuture at alexepstein.com. So that, if I would ask you to take one action, it's probably obvious that I was going to say something like this, but buy Fossil Future this week and send your receipt to FossilFuture at alexepstein.com.
0: Guys, I cannot stress enough. I, I want to hold up my copy of it. I had such an awesome time reading this. You guys need to get your copy as well. Uh, it is out now available today, I believe, right? So it's, go it's anywhere. Avail-
1: it's, a, it's available today. Yeah, go go anywhere. Fantastic.
0: Anywhere okay. you get books, just go buy it use it if you're like me and you don't think you're going to agree with some of these ideas or just the premise of the book even more of a reason for you to this is the book that you're going to read that you know read things you don't agree with open your mind up a little bit get out of your bubble get out of your comfort zone it's fun trust me um alex i want to give you one last mic because we have davos going on we have an awesome oh, yeah. oh, i got forum. something
1: you're gonna love coming out soon i'm just waiting for this newspaper to tell me whether they want it. I'm so excited to publish something. So yeah, go ahead, ask me whatever you want. I have very well, strong view about this. Thing.
0: I, I I just want to tee up like uh, Davos is going on. Like what, if you could say anything to anyone who is attending or speaking at Davos right now, feel free to look at the camera. Curse words are welcome.
1: I'm actually just pulling up the thing that I've written that I'm desperate to put up. Uh, and I've just uh, so that the... the <laughs> Well, so here's the the headline of it. So this is not for Davos people, but for the public. It's time to stop listening to Davos experts, experts in quotes. And that is, the World Economic Forum is having its annual meeting in Davos to discuss its expert prescriptions for the world. But the the World Economic Forum's past prescriptions helped cause the global energy crisis. It needs to be discredited, not listened to. So Love people it. in Davos World Economic Forum, like you guys have screwed up the world royally by opposing fossil fuel investment production and transportation on this false promise that unreliable solar wind could rapidly replace them. You are a perfect example. Of what we've been talking to the whole show. If you haven't, I should say this in a nicer tone to actually get through to people. So I'll change my tone. Try listening <laughs> to the previous part of this show. Uh, And you might have some introspection about whether you're really looking at your full track record, because in my view, your track record has been uh, murderous and you are significantly responsible for the energy shortages, skyrocketing prices and food crisis that we're having in the world today. And so the first thing you need to do is apologize. And the second thing you need to do is reflect. And if you want to know, if you want to fast forward a very difficult learning process, pick up this book read chapters one through three and you'll learn exactly what has been going wrong in your minds. I love it I, I would be politer in person so uh, I was I was I was too much in like the context of having friendly people here but uh, I talked to actually one of these top guys I can't say who but in like one of the absolute top guys in the world the other day uh, and everyone was at a group saying like hey you know asking these meager questions and m- basically my question was, why are you so afraid of a climate crisis and not an energy crisis, given that we're far safer than ever from climate related disaster, thanks to fossil fuels, but thanks to your net zero policies, we're having a global energy crisis. Like I thought this needed to be clearly stated, that obviously this guy was responsible, but nobody else seemed to think that was necessary. But if, if people are causing big problems in the world, you need to say that they are. And if you don't, believe me, they will not say that they are.
0: Oh, they're not going to hold themselves accountable? Well, we should.
1: We should all aspire. Like we should try to do that. I, I, I promise. I made a promise to myself when I was eighteen that even if I was wrong, if I discovered at eighty that I was really wrong about something I'd advocated my whole life, I would admit it to myself privately and publicly. So I would like to think that I would do that. But that is a hard thing to do, and there is no evidence that these elites—I hate that term—but like these people who are going to the World Economic Forum and treating it as this wonderful uh, place that these guys are at the height of self-awareness and uh, introspection about their wrong policies and thinking.
0: Alex, thank you for doing the work that very few people are willing to do and putting your neck and name out on the line. Um, Hopefully YouTube doesn't cancel our channel after this very, very deep and and thoughtful conversation. Give Alex a follow on Twitter, at at Alex Epstein. Uh, Be sure to get your copy of Fossil Future. Be sure to give Alex a follow on all of his other channels as well to stay up to date with everything he has going on. Alex, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much.